0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic
1: theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. This is Nick Batzig. We have on the phone with us Kyle Strobel. Kyle is the assistant professor of theology at Grand Canyon University. He did his PhD on Jonathan Edwards and on the particular work that we're going to look at today at King's College, University of Aberdeen in the UK. Kyle, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Nick. It's good to be here. And we have one of our two regular panelists. We are joined uh, by Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringoes, New Jersey. Jeff is uh, the stated supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, PA. And Jeff has just, is just finishing up his doctoral dissertation on Jonathan Edwards. You want to give our listeners a little bit of an update, Jeff?
0: Yes, I was working yesterday on the bibliography, which is not the most exciting part of preparing a <laughs> dissertation, but it must be done. So I'm, uh, Lord willing, I'm within a, a week or so of getting all the formatting and the whole thing ready to go to submit and what, uh, to, to the librarian.
1: What is the title going to be?
0: Uh, the unified operations of the human soul. Jonathan Edwards, Theological Anthropology, and Apologetic.
1: A little light bedside reading, so it sounds yeah. like that's going to be great, <laughs> Jeff. We're excited. Jeff's been working on this for a long time, and I think it's going to be a, a real contribution to Edwards' studies, and we're thankful for all the work that you've done, and glad glad to have you on the show. Um, to be here. We have uh, asked Kyle to come on to talk about a forthcoming uh, work that he's written, and it's really, I guess, a digestion and publication of his doctoral dissertation, and the title is Jonathan Edwards' Theology, a Reinterpretation. That's going to be published with Bloomsbury, and it's coming out, I believe, in January 2013. So we want to encourage our listeners to be on the lookout for that. Um, Kyle, as we enter into the show, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about why um, you set off on this project of studying Edwards' theology, the structure of it. What is the sort of the foundation of it, and how that plays into your work? Sure, I. Um,
2: it was kind of an interesting story, actually. I, I never set out to write this book or to write that dissertation. Um, I actually didn't even set out to write on Edwards at all. Um, I, when I was looking for a topic to do, I kind of came across Edwards, who I was only vaguely familiar with. Um, as most evangelicals, I would read kind of bits and pieces of religious affections here and there. And that was really my only exposure to Edwards. And I was looking for a real global reform thinker. And my supervisor kind of encouraged me. I was like, why don't you take a look at Edwards and just kind of poke around a bit and see what you think. And I very quickly kind of fell in love um, with Edwards and um, with what he was trying to do with what he was doing. And so my, my original intent was to actually kind of Poke around at Edwards' understanding of sanctification. I really wanted to, you know, get at, well, how did Edwards understand the Christian life? Um, how did he understand the doctrine of sanctification specifically? And what I realized and what really shocked me was that as I started reading the secondary literature, I was, I was really looking for, I needed someone to provide me with a methodology. I needed someone to say, this is how we think about Edwards as a reformed theologian and um, biblical and systematic reformed theologian. And then I could build on their um, their thesis, their um, methodology. So what, because dealing with sanctification, of course, you're dealing with a doctrine that's kind of down the road a bit. And so I, I needed to be, I needed to find someone else's work I could kind of locate mine in. And what I was surprised with initially was that, so how few theologians actually ever read Edwards. And actually, in, in, in kind of Um, commentate on his work at all. And when you look at Edward's studies, it's primarily historians, it's still dominated by American historians, and they're doing great work, but they often start with Edwards and go from him forward. And so there's not usually a lot of understanding of um, the High Orthodox period of Reformed theology, of Edwards' own kind of um, understanding of kind of how did he fit into the thought world that he was hoping to fit into. Um, they start with him and they, they kind of buy into the lie, which I think the great lie of Edwards studies that Edwards has no father, um, that he was the guy on the wilderness brunt who was starting from scratch. And so as I wrestled with that reality that I didn't think Edwards was that, I thought he was being a good Reformed theologian like John Owen, like um, Van Maastricht, like tretton before him, that I needed to read him in that vein. And, and I realized very quickly that all the interpretive schemes out there, I didn't think got them right. I think they got them very wrong, actually. And typically, there's two major strands of in terms of the secondary literature. The one, probably best personified by Perry Miller and then Seng Hyun Lee, is to start with Edwards' philosophy, um, create a case for Edwards as the great philosophical thinker, and then apply whatever you just developed wholesale to his theology. And that, as I, as I kind of looked around at the... The secondary literature, I realized, you know, this is what's dominating Edward's studies as a field. And if I'm going to treat Edwards the way I think he needs to be treated, which is primarily as a theologian and a reformed theologian, what I have to do is I have to, I can't write on sanctification. I actually have to go back and do that methodological treatise that I was looking for. And so really that's what started me on this, this kind of, this path was trying to find a bedrock place that I can actually talk about Edwards from and doing so in a way that I thought was faithful to Edwards.
1: Yeah, that's great. I I had a professor in seminary who, um, John Carrick, who wrote a book on Edwards preaching. I think it's published with Banner of Truth. And I remember he, coined the phrase "Edwards in the hands of English professors," and you could say, as you've noted too, those studying him for philosophical value primarily, or mm-hmm. leading with that, and then reading everything else through that, rather than reading him first and foremost, as you note in your introduction, as um, a theologian first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And um, as you came to consider that specific aspect of Edwards' works, what was it that you um, that you discovered in all of his writings that you think kind of permeate and structure um, the majority of his work theologically? Yeah, well, yeah, the way I approached it is is there's, um,
2: what's what's kind of nice is there is some, very few, but there is some things that everyone agrees upon kind of universally in Edward's studies. And, and the first is that Edward's Trinitarian theology governs everything else. So Edward's understanding of God, his doctrine of God, has to be the foundation of everything else. Um, even guys like St. Hugh Lee admit that. And what's interesting about Lee is when you look at his book, he's, that's the last chapter. And yet, you think it should be the first chapter in light of that comment. But, and so what I decided to do is, well, let's, if, if Lee's right and if everyone's right, then the first thing we have to talk about in Edwards is his doctrine of the Trinity. What did he believe about God? How did he underst- understand God to be the Trinitarian God of the Bible? And then how does that organize and really fund his systematic theology? But then – and there's a lot of – there's some guys, I mean, um, Bill Schweitzer, for instance, he's going to argue that that becomes our interpretive key right there, that that Edwards understands God as a communicative communicative being, and therefore that's the interpretive key. I kind of argue that that is a mistake, actually. Um, That is the, the important piece. But you have to read that through two other doctrines to get it right. It has to be more robust than that. The first doctrine would be creation. Um, and the key text, of course, is end for which God created the world. And what we learn there is God creates for his own glory, which is going to build on his understanding of the Trinity. And, and Edwards gives us a wonderful Trinitarian account of glory there. And then you have to bracket that with consummation. So, so you have the doctrine of God, who God is in his inner life. And then you have God, the God who creates, the God who's for us in, in Christ and the Spirit. And then really asking the question, well, what does this God do? And, and you're answering that question by looking at the consummation of all things. What this God does with his creation will tell you a lot about how Edwards' theology functions. And so you start with God who's outside of time. You start with God as he and, and kind of creates and enters into time and in the creation. And then you're looking at what is he doing with his creation. And that becomes the—you kind of, kind of use those three doctrines to triangulate everything else. And the, the way I think about it is it's really kind of top-down. The top register is is God and the doctrine of God. The second register is is you're bracketing all things, uh, all theological doctrine with creation and consummation. And then with under that, what I ended up doing is tried to pick what are three really key doctrines for Edwards that everyone agrees are important. But I kind of thought they weren't actually dealt with all that carefully. Um, And I chose um, spiritual knowledge. Um, his understanding of regeneration and then religious affection. And the way, you know, what's interesting for me was in, when I got to religious affection, as I was poking around the secondary literature, I couldn't find anyone who just asked the simple question, well, why does Edwards care about religious affection? And I think what happened is we, we assume he did, well, he's, you know, we, we think him as a Puritan and they cared about it. So he would care about it. And of course for Edwards, he never just accepted something just because other people before him, who, whom he, whom he respected it. You know, as we learned from his grandfather, Stoddard, he didn't just accept something. (laughs) He's going to critically engage it. And so I wanted to ask theologically, why religious affection? And I think what we see is that Edward's doctrine of God um, permeates everything he does. And once we read that through his understanding of creation, um, his understanding of consummation, doctrines that may be a little unusual to us. As well as certain things people notice but leave unexplained to begin to make sense. For instance, almost everyone notes how visual Edwards' theology is, including those literary folk, right? It's one of the reasons they love him, right? They, 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 there's this incredible visual component to Edwards' thought, but it's, it's left totally unexplained. And, and so I seek to provide an interpretive key that actually can explain these things theologically for Edwards and mm. locate them appropriately.
1: Mm. Well, you have that very helpful chart on page thirteen of your introduction. That I was mm. I was actually at the gym on the elliptical machine reading your <laughs> re, reading your introduction, and I looked at the chart and I thought that's that's really helpful. It's actually mm. a very useful chart where you take these three components and show how they're all kind of interconnected and working together and fitting into their own place. Of Edwards on the Trinity, Edwards on creation consummation, and then Edwards on redemption and affection, and um, at the very outset of this work, you emphasize the importance of Edward's theological um, uh, project that he Mm -hmm. himself talks about in his um, address. Um, I think he was at his presidential address at College of New Jersey at that time, and, and how it's really interconnected with history of the work of redemption. And could you talk a little bit about what his plan was and what we actually have you know, in history, the work of redemption that can give us some insight into that plan and, mm-hmm. and all of the importance of that. Yeah, yeah, there's several really
2: fascinating pieces to that. You know, and a lot of people, you know, Edwards, you know, Edwards said a lot of provocative things that has left us all kind of scrambling around trying to figure out what he meant. Um, probably the most provocative was when he claimed that he's going to do theology in an entirely new method, um, thrown into the form of a history, as he kind of says, and, you know, of course, interpreters have ever since been kind of clamoring around trying to figure out what in the world does that mean? And, you know, in part, what, what I try to argue is that what it can't mean is simply that Edwards was going to look at theology in a redemptive historical format. Um, ultimately, you know, Edwards is, if he did that, was just redoing what Owen has already done in his biblical theology um, volume, um, doing what Van Maastricht has already done. I think I think what we learn about history of redemption is that Edwards is who we think he is, which is a reformed theologian. <laughs> and so redemptive history is is going to form not only the content, but in, in some way it was going to form his methodology. Along with that, what we learn is that Edwards and this it's one, This is another one of those things that I think a lot of people notice, but I don't think anyone's really stopped back and said, well, wait a second. What does this mean? Edwards continually turns to Ezekiel 1 in a very curious way, actually. And Ezekiel 1 is just this image of wheels within the wheels. He's got huge notebook entries about it. But what's important is that it doesn't only occur in his notes. This isn't wasn't Edwards just musing. It pops up in, in many of his major works. Including, importantly, history of the work of redemption. And when you look at the re- history of work of redemption outline, you know, you're seeing these big movements of redemptive history. And if you, if you map that onto his notes on Ezekiel 1, what you realize is Edward is actually saying each wheel in Ezekiel's image maps on directly onto his outline of history of the work of redemption. And so we give this image of all these wheels kind of spinning of time. And, and that, that actually is, is one of the ways I came up with the image that you noted on, on page 13, where we have this this great image, in other words, talks about the, there's, there, the the biggest wheel will will spin once, and it goes away from God as God creates, He kind of sends it off, and and, and all of history is wrapped up in this one rotation, as everything comes back to God, um, either to share in His life for eternity, or, or to come before Him in judgment um, and and receive their their punishment for that, for His re- the rejection of God, and, and so. What I noted is, is, as I I started reading history of redemption, as I started reading these notes, and I started seeing these images kind of pop up all over Edwards' writing, is that Edwards believes that all of history takes on this kind of cyclical nature. And the the key words for him are emanation and remination, which are tied to his understanding of glory, that ultimately all of these wheels are kind of gears of glory in the great machine of time. And that redemptive history. What we learn about redemptive history is that even though it's hard to interpret some of these movements of redemption, some of these wheels. In other words, we'll say, you know, we'll, we'll see the wheel of redemptive history kind of crashing to the ground, and even as it does so, it's rising up in a, in a new, And that might be one kingdom crashing to the ground, another kingdom rising up. And he's saying we see this in history, we see this going on. And he said, but what you don't see is that all of these things are working for God's glory. And the other image he likes to use for this is the, 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 all the different rivers that are branching out in different directions. And what you don't see if you, until you step far enough back is that they all unite in one. Um, and that's for the glory of God. So, so that became the second important piece for me, that once we see this, um, and once we get how it relates to his understanding of the Trinity and, and redemption itself, it, you, you really get to see this inner cohesion to everything he was doing. And as a systematic theologian, that's what one of the things I was most interested in is how can we really get to what kind of holds all this together for him? And then the, the third thing is that Edwards talks about, and this is what, and I would agree with kind of Harry Stout in this, in this sense, um, even though we have other disagreements, is that what's really distinctive about his method is that he was going to do this with all three realms, as he would say, in mind, heaven, earth, and hell. And that for Edwards, heaven and hell were realities, um, and therefore places in some sense, but they were also fueled by certain realities. So, for instance, heaven is what it is because God is there, and God is the God of love. Therefore, as we know, heaven is the world of love. Well, hell is its opposite. It's, it's that rejection of God, therefore, and embracing of hate and of, of selfishness and, and those kinds of things. And so what we see in the world is that those two realms are actually inserting their influence already. And, what's again, what's interesting is Edwards invokes um, the, the image of Ezekiel 1 to talk about this, um, that, that all of history is this chariot of Christ. And what's interesting is that heaven and earth, specifically, are a part of one wheel of that chariot, um, which means—and this is something that Robert Caldwell does a great job of highlighting, but still, even though he's done a great job of highlighting it, people continually miss it—is that heaven, earth, and hell are on the same trajectory— they are attached and both all three of those worlds are reacting to what 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 god is doing in christ and redemption and therefore for instance one of the main textual problems which of course anyone who reads edwards realizes there's all sorts of (laughs) textual issues is when you when you start talking about edwards view of heaven you have different ages of heaven because heaven is changing because of what christ is doing in the history of redemption Um, And and because heaven and earth are tied together in that way. And um, this, I I see uh, still, I think there's a lot of, even books coming out that have just come out, I've seen make this mistake, where we fail to recognize that these eras of history that are organized by Christ or oriented, we should say, by Christ, inform us of how we think about consummation specifically. And if we don't, if we're not careful to ask the question, whenever we're just talking about heaven... Which heaven is he talking about, which era is he talking about? We end up misinterpreting him to say some sometimes some very odd things.
1: Right. Well, and I like how you say on page nine, you say, as such, this organizing framework for Edwards' theology revolves around redemption and ultimately Christ, its centerpiece. And then you go on to say, just as each demarcation of history of of redemption corresponds to a wheel, as you've already mentioned from that allusion in Ezekiel, so this image would serve the theocentricity of Edwards' systematic Mm -hmm. portrayal of doctrine. It's interesting, I've had a number of professors and, and professor friends who uh, will argue that Edwards was permanently theocentric. And yet I like how you say, and I think you're absolutely right, that he is both theocentric and he is Christocentric, that mm-hmm. it's not an either or. He is, yeah. and obviously your first chapter on the Trinity is going to emphasize that, but it's the Trinity at work in creation and in redemption and consummation and mm-hmm. um, permanently centering on Christ. And so, Very grateful that you point that out, Jeff. Do you have any questions for Kyle at this point?
0: Oh well, uh, is your well one? uh, It's fascinating, not so much a question but just an observation. I'm preaching through Ezekiel at at my church, and so I was Mm. fascinated to discover that Edwards has this notion of the cyclical history, uh, but also Mm. has a linear element as well, of course. But uh, uh, Kyle, uh, Harry Stout basically in, uh, in the uh, chapter of the legacy of Jonathan Edwards that you've referenced in the, the Tri-World Vision pits systematics against uh, the new method of Edwards, the historical method. Do you think that is completely fair, that, that way of looking at what Edwards wants to do?
2: In terms of kind of pitting history versus systematics?
0: Well, in other words, the the stout suggests that we're tossing out the uh, traditional systematic Loki method mm-hmm. and replacing it with with uh, pure, I guess, pure history. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that uh, that's how I've understood it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think Harry does say that, and others have said that as well. I think that is kind of fundamentally misguided. I mean, I think what Edwards, when he talks about his great project. Um, what it's going to do is it's going to be theocentric. So it's going to be about God, and therefore it's going to be about the history of the work of redemption. Because if you're going to talk about God, ultimately you're going to spend a lot of time talking about who this God is and what does He do. And the way Edwards going to do that, instead, I, th- I think there was going to be a um, a visual component that showed something un- unlike most systematic theologies, which are going to focus the low size in a certain order for a certain reason. Edwards does that, but the the historical component, I think, would have formed the systematic in a different kind of way. Um, now, how that would have worked, I'm not quite sure. I, it's it, it's unclear to me that we have any ex- specific examples of that. Um, I think it would have probably followed the broad outline of history of the work of redemption, but in terms of what it would have um, actually kind of looked like, I, I, I don't know what it would have how it would have come across. I mean, I think of the problem that he's going to run into and it is it's similar to the problem that Calvin ran into with the commentaries, right? Which led to him writing the institutes. That there's just some things you ha- that, that don't kind of fit neatly that you're either going to kind of, you know, keep on going over and over and over and over, or you could write the institutes and tell people to read that before they read your commentaries and it kind of to right, solve that right. problem. And so, but I think for Edwards, because of the way his Trinitarian theology works, he would have started there and so you, you would start off immediately with the doctrine of God, and then he'd show how this God exists economically for us in the history of the work of redemption and reading it Christologically and showing how with the movement of redemption, what we're seeing is a kind of a certain movement of God in the world to redeem and reconcile and save as well as to judge. And, and that those components would would be the, the forming nature of this work. But he was also hoping to show that this, forms time in a real sense and therefore history in a real sense, which means that we can develop a certain understanding of wisdom when it comes to interpreting the, the world as it presently is. Right. Which I think was going to be the great upshot for
1: his his method. It's it's interesting too, just backpedaling a little bit to what you said about others had done biblical theological things. Owen has his volume on biblical theology and and it is there are you know, major differences in the approach between Owen and Edwards, not in their theology per se, but in the approach. But then yeah. you see you see almost Edwards pioneering, and I know Adrian Neelay, and I never say that right, so I'm not even going to try to say his name yeah. right, but I know he said at the conference we were at in Glasgow, it was the first time I heard this, that he believed Edwards had lifted so much of the history of work of redemption out of and, yeah. or had been so yep. influenced by Van Maastricht. And I forget, it was one of the later sections in Van Maastricht that we're all waiting for, because none of us can read, read Latin. Yeah. because We don't have the time, because <laughs> yeah. we're pastor in churches, and we should have learned it when we were young. But, um, <laughs> but, but it is interesting that there's almost, there's almost an experimental development at this point um, mm-hmm. in Edwards that, you know, everybody hails Voss as the father of biblical theology, but I read Voss and mm-hmm. I read Edwards. I mean, I love... I sure, love yeah. biblical theology because I read Voss as a young Christian and the mm-hmm. book of Hebrews and Galatians. And then I read, you know, Edwards and you see a very common um, development there. So, so that when we come to somebody like Bob Inc., you know, in his systematic, mm-hmm. what I see him doing is trying to wed biblical and systematic theology together to keep his mm-hmm. systematic theology very redemptive historical. And that, yeah. and that seems that that's really what Edwards is trying to do. Mm-hmm. is to yeah. is to be as robust as he can in keeping these things together and and yet I know I've had a lot of conversations with guys about the difficulty and it's weird <laughs> that most reformed theologians do tend to uh to systematics over biblical and Jeff and I have talked a, a lot about that. I'm not sure why mm-hmm. they tend to favor systematics over biblical theology or redemptive mm-hmm. history because the two are not antithetical. Yeah. Um Yeah, well, there's, you know, some of the things that's interesting is, in Owen's um, biblical
2: theology, Owen makes a fascinating side comment, that there is a different strand of this that we call mystical theology that's dependent upon Ezekiel 1. Um, He says it derives from Maimonides, um, a figure Edwards had a a very kind of keen interest in. So, that tells me that there is a strand that we maybe have not have paid that close to, of attention to that Edwards did, that he thought this was a possible way to wed these two things. Looking for these markers in Scripture that point to this deep coherence. Ezekiel 1 for him being a really important one. I mean, Edwards, if you remember the discussion of the divine attributes, Edwards ends up giving four divine attributes that are extrinsic to God. They're by um, they're the ones that the and for which God created the world that God doesn't exercise without created realities. What's interesting? Those are the four beasts that pull the chariot of Ezekiel one. And so for Edwards, he's looking for these unifying markers. Ultimately, the unifying marker is going to be his doctrine of the Trinity, and that's going to so cohere everything together that he's able to make it systematic even as it is, it's going to follow more of a biblical, redemptive historical kind of route. But he was clearly looking for these, these key kind of markers throughout Scripture that, that gave him these, these kind of big-picture ideas that would allow him, I think, at very key moments to do some of that deeply systematic kind of work within this kind of context. And so that's one thing to keep in mind with Edwards that's kind of interesting. The other would be he there was an aesthetic piece here for him for theology to be good theology, it had to be beautiful in a real sense, which means it had to um, it had to be in harmony. And so Edwards was really concerned with, even down to I think formatting, like how am I going to, to present this in such a way that really represents how beautiful it is. And as a reformed thinker, I think he turns to the history of redemption. Because of that, of that kind of recognition that this is what's really beautiful about this. is If you get this piece, notice how all things hinge around this, all things turn around it. That if you see what Christ is doing, what you see what the Spirit of God is doing, everything gets wrapped up in this unifying theme. And for Edwards, that was really important. And it played much of a much thicker role, if I could put it that way, than it does for us, that this should be beautiful. Um, and, and Christians should recognize it as such. In a sense, good theology would all, would have an apologetic appeal to it by very nature of it being good theology, because if you just had eyes to see, you would see, this is beautiful. And and so he was very concerned. Those two things, I think, drove him to, to look for this, um, as you said, maybe a new kind of synthesis that, it because he was never able to do it, it took us a while <laughs> to actually find the people who were able to do this in a, in a, in a greater, more kind of,
1: unified way, instead right. of
2: splitting these, you know, biblical and systematic into totally different spheres.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I wonder how many, even in the 19th century, were influenced by history of the work of redemption. Um, there mm-hmm. were a couple of Southern Presbyterians who did some biblical and kind of biblical and biblical systematic theologies. Uh, Charles Colcock Jones wrote A History of the Church of God in its various mm-hmm. dispensations, and it is very much an attempt to look at the Bible chronologically and redemptive historically, and yet to be doing systematic theology in the vein of progressive revelation as he goes. And it's very interesting, and I'm, I'm, you know, probably could almost be certain that he had been influenced by Edwards on that. Mm. And, and Edwards, really, history of the work Redemption is, in many respects, way ahead of its time. Um, yeah. You know, the we're living in the surge of the biblical theological revolution in the last hundred years or so, and and yet written so long before. So it's fascinating. I think you're absolutely right, too. Jeff and I talk a lot, I mean, even Edwards' typology we talk about mm. is, rooted in his covenant theology, which is really his biblical theology. And, Mm. um, and you see how prevalent his Christocentricity and, and typology are in everything that he writes. Um, Yeah. Jeff, do you have any more questions for Kyle about the book?
0: Well, uh, actually, no, I was, I'm enjoying the conversation, (laughs) but I, uh, I hate, well, we should, we should mention his other books that, that, that are either coming out or are out.
1: Well, let me ask this question, this final question then, sure. Kyle, and then we'll talk about your um, your books, and I'm going to clean all this up. Um, you do mention a good bit about Edwards' work on the Trinity. Could you talk about the importance of that with regard to person and beatific self-glorification and all those things that you mentioned? Sure, sure. Yeah, when I when I started exploring Edwards, it, it became
2: very clear to me very quickly that to get Edwards right, you really had to get his doctrine of the Trinity right. And that's – everyone was saying that, but as I read it, I was – I had this kind of sneaking suspicion that no one had gotten it right. Um, and so I entered into this discussion while a lot of debates were going on. You had one side with um, Stephen Studebaker who was making a very kind of adamant claim that Edwards is Augustinian, full stop. That's how we think of him. And then you had Amy plantinga Powell and Donaher writing books who were claiming actually Edward is Augustinian only insofar as he utilizes a kind of a psychological analogy for the Trinity. And we really have to recognize, they would say, that he, he kind of buttresses that up with an actual kind of a more social model of the Trinity. And I, I immediately, I was, I'm a little, little allergic to those kind of arguments because it, 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 they're driven by categorization. And one of the things I've learned about Edwards is he's not easily categorized. It, and even if he was an Augustinian, it would, it would I think be historically unhelpful to even refer to him as one. He, we, no one thinks he actually read Augustine on the Trinity. Um, at best it, we could say he's Western in some way say, but I, I was feeling what's happening is here. people are coming with assumptions about what a, a doctrine of the Trinity should look like that weren't historical in terms of a high, reformed high orthodoxy and were' trying to fit Edwards into him and they either were making him much cleaner than he is. Or they were just lopping off <laughs> whole kind of segments of his thought, and so I do a lot of very close textual analysis. And what I came up with was is what I believe the problem: Edwards actually changes his view of the Trinity, and no one's noticed. What what we see, and if you read Edwards' notes right when he started writing his notebooks in the Miscellanies, and you read all the all the ones in the Trinity. And then you read the Discourse on the Trinity, and the Discourse on the Trinity is a work which was never readied for publication. It's Caldwell calls it, I believe he he refers to it as this, where Caldwell kind of talks about it and says it's it's a point where it's beyond the status of a note, but it's not quite to the status of a published work. But he clearly, this was a, an aha moment for him. He kind of congealed his thought at that moment, even though the, the way he goes about doing it might not be congealed, if I could put it that way, his... His argument's not clean, but if you want to know what his doctrine of the Trinity is, you have to look there. What I found interesting is that, by and large, the discourse could have been almost fully created just by copying and pasting, if Edwards had a computer, his previous note entries into one document. And my question was, why? Why why waste the paper? We know Edwards was concerned about paper. (laughs) He wrote so much, you know, all the kids were running around creating little booklets for him and how, like, why would you con- why did you take the stuff you've already read and put it in one document? And as I looked over those notes and looked over the doctrine of the Trinity as developed in the discourse, I noticed there's a one point where there's a distinct difference, and it's in how he understands the persons of God. And what's interesting is, I, I, still, I was at the same point, I was reading Cold uh, I'm sorry, Studebaker's dissertation that became a book, and I noticed that whenever he gets to that point in the discourse, he doesn't talk about the discourse and actually references Edwards' old note instead, and that's when it hit me. I'm like, this is what, this is the point. What, what Studebaker is recognizing, probably subconsciously, is that he doesn't like what Edwards saying in the discourse, and he's assuming he's saying the same thing in his note. So he just uses the note because he thinks it's clear. And what he's missed is that Edwards actually changed his view. Up until the discourse, you, it'd be accurate to call Edwards an Augustinian. At, from the discourse on, that's on, that's inaccurate. And when I kind of, I was exploring around in Reformed High Orthodoxy, and one of the things I discovered is at in this stage of Reformed theology, one of the images that the Reform began to use to talk about the doctrine of God was the beatific vision. That, and for the Reform of this period, the beatific vision was an incredibly important doctrine. It, it showed up in three distinct places. It showed up in theological prolegomena, in terms of spiritual knowledge, and the Reform wanted to talk about ectypal and archetypal knowledge. And our ectypal knowledge is, Pilgrim knowledge here, therefore, by faith, and our faith will will dissolve into sight once we our pilgrimage ends in glory. And so we, we we're pilgrims now. We become we cease to be pilgrims, and we we have faith or knowledge by faith here. We will have knowledge by sight there, the beatific vision. Well, the Reformed also started using the beatific vision in their doctrine of God that God Himself is the God of the beatific vision. So in a sense. God gazes upon himself, and, and, and the way Edwards at one point talks about the beatific vision is that it is the happifying sight. It is the sight which generates happiness or delight. And basically, the Reformers saying, hey, look, that's what we say about God. God is the God who has infinite delight in his own being. And what, what Edwards did, unlike as far as I know anyone else, is he organized his entire doctrine of God around God's beatific self-envisioning and once you once you realize that three things become very important first that that his his understanding of the trinity is oriented by the personhood of god which again he he develops in unique ways and once you realize that it begins to make a lot of sense because edwards's main worry i believe was samuel clark um who was writing a work that people believed was arian although that's probably not technically correct that that's how it was received And like Edwards always did, if anyone knows Edwards, if there was a major work, and he loved Clark, he used Clark's previous works quite a bit, here's a major figure in Britain, so what Edwards, of course, kind of considered his intellectual home, writing a work he thought was heresy on the main doctrine of of Christianity, the doctrine of Trinity, we should assume Edwards' was writing response. And I I think the discourse was the beginning of that. Um, The second key part is, is the beatific part of that, so it's persons. It's a beatific, and because it's beatific, the focus is delight. And again, when you read the discourse, what you see is the God the Father gazing on the perfect image of himself, and therefore happiness, love emanating between them is the spirit. And so what we see is is, is the beatific vision is, is God's life, or to put it in Edwards' terms, God's life is religious affection and pure act. And if that's the archetype, it should not surprise us that the archetype, our knowledge of God must be religious, must have, our religious knowledge of God must be affectionate knowledge. Yeah, that's really good. Um, We only fully get what a religious affection is about once we understand what God's life is, because that's what forms knowledge of that God.
1: Now, let me ask you a question briefly about his Trinitarianism. How, Mm -hmm. if, if in any way, does the unpublished essay play into all this? Because I know that was... You know, I've I've done a good bit of research on the unpublished essay, and it was finally published in, what, 1903, I think? And mm-hmm. um, yep. the evidence is that Edwards didn't want that published, that that was experimental, that the son being the idea of the father and all of mm-hmm. that. Um, do you find that in the discourse? I've not read the discourse on the Trinity. I know Jeff probably has. Do you find the well, same that's theology? the same work, actually. Oh, it that's is the, the same, same work. work. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So
2: it's, to, 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 for whatever reason, scholars have referred to it, either as the essay or as the discourse. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm not sure why. Um, I think the reason why Edwards didn't publish it wasn't so much that it was experimental, actually. Um, Edwards, you actually rarely <laughs> worried all that much about that. Right. Because <laughs> what you see is he goes back at the end, and he what ends up happening is he goes back and he, he's adding on later in his life through the notes as well as the discourse itself, more <laughs> biblical argumentation. Okay, yeah. And he believed this was biblical. He believed if you look at the sun as the understanding, that actually makes sense when you start looking at the sun. I mean obviously the logos. Right. He's the wisdom um, of he,
1: God. He's got that whole section on how Christ is the wisdom of God and yes, spoken of his wisdom yeah. and So and then he
2: also thinks the same thing about the spirit, that is talking about the spirit as the love, delight, um, will of God. The image of scripture point to that. Now what I think he's doing and again, I would say well, people haven't understood what the discourse is, is seeking to achieve. If um and Jeff, you might be it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, because this is central to his apologetics kind of um his approach. I, I think one of the things that Edwards loves to do is to start on the same ground as you and then take that ground out from underneath you. <laughs> if if he's in a debate with you, that's what he's gonna seek to do. Um or you know, yeah, or yeah, one of the many kind of things he liked to do. Um and so what we see is you have, all across the continent, anti-Trinitarianism is, is thriving. So the only agreed-upon point is that the Father is God. Everything after that, you have people denying the personhood of the, of the Spirit. You have people denying the divinity of Jesus. I think what Edwards was doing is entering that discussion or seeking to. Um, he never got to complete the work, although I, th- I think if he had time, he would have used the same argument but just beefed up quite a bit. And so he starts with God. And when you read the first part of the discourse or the essay, depending on how you want to talk about it, what you realize is this isn't a Trinitarian God he's even talking about yet. What you see is you you have God with his perfect idea, and he loves that perfect idea. And there's nothing really Trinitarian about that yet. And so the argument moves for more of a, a kind of a singular, the singular personhood of God. And it's not until the end where he spins that on you and shows you that that understanding of God applies to the Jesus of Scripture. That will of God applies to the Spirit of Scripture. And so then he turns to biblical argumentation, and then he turns to invoke very obvious kind of perichoresis. And so he says, basically, the reason why we know that the that the say the Spirit is a person rather than just the will, because this becomes the problem for his view, which is been a western problem for a long time. If we say the Spirit's will, how can we actually talk about him as a person? He then invokes the, the kind of inner penetration, we might say, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. their essential unity to say, well, the Spirit has a will and understanding, because the Spirit has the Son, and then it's course, grounded in the nature of the Father, and therefore the the Spirit has, uh, is a being with understanding and will, which is a definition of a person, that all three of these are persons only insofar as as they partake of their essential unity, and so what he does, kind of I think very provocatively, is he flips the typical argument on its head, where you only have unity insofar as you you have triunity, and you only have triunity insofar as you have unity, mm-hmm. and and so it's this is a direct I think polemic against the anti-trinitarians. No anti-Trinitarian would deny that God's the Father, who has a perfect, under- who has perfect understanding of himself, and that he loves that infinitely. By, by kind of starting on common ground with them, then moving to the biblical texts, he could show that God's that, – that understanding that everyone believes in God, that he was walking around. <laughs> what do we do with that? And then, then he invokes more kind of classic Trinitarianism to show how this, God's understanding is, in fact, one of the persons of the triune God. And I think if you look at Edward's work after that, this becomes, this is, um, this is his standard view. Every time he turns to God, this is the God we find. This is the God that's developed in the discourse. Mm. And this is why, for instance, I mean, if um, you, you know, why when you have the excellency of Christ, um, Christ is the image of the Father to, to you know, to, to see Christ is to see God. Um, to have the Spirit is to have um, God's very own love. Um, to be in Christ is to have God's very own wisdom. I mean, this is why Edwards' theology takes that participationist turn, um, where even justification, for instance, is we we aren't the justified ones. Christ is the justified one, right. and it's only as we partake in His life do we find ourselves as justified. I think his understanding of Trinity, everything gets wrapped up in that, and and that's what gives Edwards' theology its distinct kind of feel that that we all know. I think usually we just don't ground that because mm-hmm. we haven't seen what he's trying to do in his Doctrine of the Trinity.
1: Well, one of the things I loved, I read it as a very young Christian, and one of the things I loved about... Um, the discourse is that Edwards tries to answer the question why the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in the Mm. intros to the epistles, especially Paul and grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I'm still, to this day, I still wrestle with how I feel about, the way he explains everything because it could equally be said that Christ is the love and the wisdom. And he says Mm -hmm. he's the wisdom, but that the Holy spirit is the grace of God. And we know he is his attributes and he's selectively putting it to the person of the Godhead who communicates that attribute between the father and the son and to us. But Mm -hmm. I I did find that, you know, I did find that to be one of the most fascinating explanations Mm. of why the Holy spirit's not mentioned at the, yeah. the intro to the epistles. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, so, and he's the only guy I've read that. in. I'm sure others have, have tried to deal with it, but that's mm. Edwards is the only one that's, that I've read who has actually yeah. attempted to answer that from, you know, Trinitarian, um, inter-Trinitarian relationships and yeah. roles. So. Well, uh, it explains some of his
2: other things that have confused people like his doctrine of the divine attributes, mm-hmm. um, his real versus relational distinction, by making the Son and the Spirit the attributes of God, what you've just done is you've, you've pushed the anti-Trinitarians to a very uncomfortable position because they're trying to argue that the Father only has the attributes of God. The Son and the Spirit don't, mm-hmm. or they would be God. And, and so Edwards, you know, even there, he's showing them, actually, look, no, to have the Spirit, as you noted, is to have the peace and grace of God, right? Um, to have communion with God, because the Spirit is God's attribute. God's right. will, and the Son is God's attributes, God's understanding, and so therefore he's he's very concerned to offer a doctrine of the Trinity that pushes very heavily away from both the Deism of his day as well as the anti-Trinitarianism of his day.
1: Yeah, I agree that it's it's very difficult to read um, Edwards. Essay on the Trinity in any kind of anti-Trinitarian sense. I remember there was yeah. some famous poet who grew <laughs> yeah. up here in Midway, Georgia. Actually, his parents went to Midway Congregational Church, and I'm his name slipping me, but he was a very well-known poet that actually charged Edwards with um, Arianism because mm-hmm. of that essay, and I can't remember mm-hmm. who it was, but. Um, um, very, very important work, obviously, in Edward's study. Well, Jeff, do you have any final things you want to ask Kyle before we go to books?
0: Nope. Oh, well, I'm, it's fascinating what you've just uh, suggested, Kyle. I have to give more thought to it. I, I, I hadn't uh, given a lot of thought to that angle with the, uh, his uh, method of uh, starting with uh, God the Father and then arguing that that requires the, the Son and the Spirit. So that's fascinating. So I don't have a question. I'm just looking forward to this book so that I can uh, uh, dwell on it some more. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well, the book looks great. We're eager for it to come out in January. want to encourage our listeners to be on the lookout for that. This show should be um, – just a few months before that book comes out, this will be this the show will air. And so, um, look for the TNT Clark Studies in Systematic Theology titled Jonathan Edwards' Theology of Reinterpretation. We also want to encourage uh, our listeners to check out some of the other stuff that Kyle has, um, has worked on. Kyle, you've got a chapter in. Um, Oh, I'm gonna forget this. Help me out with the title, and I'll say this. Jonathan Edwards and Justification. I had it in front of me. I closed this down. Uh, <laughs> hold on, I'll do it again. Kyle, you've got a chapter in Jonathan Edwards and Justification compilation volume. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, yeah. Josh Moody got a got a group of us together who are um, who believe Edwards held to a pretty typical Reformed High Orthodox view of justification, but that he kind of, as he does, creatively reworked it uh my chapter looks at um kind of locates edwards doctrine of justification um by talking about regeneration uh, by locating it within edwards doctrine of god and, and and those kind of those kind of systematic issues and so um it's a good volume Doug sweeney's in there and my a good friend of mine Reith, from um, Australia, is in there so it's a it's a it's a good volume
1: Kyle's chapter is titled, By Word and Spirit, Jonathan Edwards on Redemption, Justification, and Regeneration in Jonathan Edwards and Justification, edited by Josh Moody. That came out this year uh, from Crossway Publication. Jeff Waddington's written a book review of that over on Feeding on Christ back in August, August 25th, 2012. So you can read his review of that if you're interested. Kyle also blogs at several places. His blog is Metamorpha, and so check that out, metamorpha.com. Um, where Kyle, um, I guess the full title is metamorphic.com slash blog slash author slash KC Strobel. And um, you can... You can read more of what he's writing there. Every month he's put up new posts. Um, again, Kyle is the assistant professor of theology at Grand Canyon University, and they have some new uh, campuses opening up in the near future, we've been told. And so if you'd like to learn more about that school, look them up online. And uh, we are just grateful, Kyle, that you took the time to come on. We're excited about your book. Jeff and I were Remarking about how wonderful it was, very well written, easy to read, edifying, thought provoking. So we are really thankful for the work you've done. Mm.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: We want to encourage our listeners to continue tuning in. We have several great interviews coming up. We're going to jump back into doing our recordings on various Edwards sermons and considering his theology and the history of these sermons and um, lots of good stuff coming up. So we're thankful that you've tuned in to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards.